Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast. I have the distinct pleasure of sitting today with Dr. Tess Laurie, who is an MD and PhD. She is also an external analyst for The Who and an expert in analysis, and as I understand it, Tess, also in the extrapolation of evidence to um, prescriptive medicine. Is that a fair characterization? It's called, um, well, it's it's a guideline methodologist. So I, uh, I help to assess evidence and compile it in a way uh, in, in what's called evidence to decision frameworks to help uh, guideline panels make recommendations on treatments. Evidence to decision. That is a dry way of describing how to understand what we believe we know and extrapolate to um, treating patients so they get healthier. Fair enough? Correct. All right. Well, welcome to Dark Horse. I certainly appreciate you making the time. Now, I should say, you and I were scheduled to have a conversation today, and uh, yesterday an article emerged in The Guardian that has thrown Twitter into chaos. People seem to not understand how to interpret evidence and to change that interpretation uh, based on concerns. So that gives us the opportunity to help them sort it out. Now, if you would allow me, uh, I am not a data scientist. I am a biologist, but I've certainly done analyses. When I saw this Guardian article, a couple of things occurred to me. One, the article is bizarrely political and in fact politicizes the entire question. So the article describes a uh, reasons for concern about a randomized control trial involving the drug ivermectin, which those who have followed Dark Horse uh, will recognize. People who have followed you, Dr. Laurie, will also recognize. And so the long and short of it is concerns were raised about a paper that reports that ivermectin is a useful treatment and prophylactic for COVID. And this caused many people, including the Guardian itself, to imagine that something about the overall picture of the utility of this drug had radically changed. Now, my thinking was that's not the case, that in fact, uh, if one believes that the only kind of evidence that matters is a large-scale randomized control trial, then yes, the discovery that a given trial is compromised is uh, a very serious matter. On the other hand, that's not the way evidence works. Uh, Your expertise covers what's called meta-analysis. Meta-analysis is the art of taking numerous different types of studies and figuring out how to properly integrate the findings so that they uh, compile to um, a, a clearer picture. And am I correct in saying that having done a meta-analysis, if one finds a given study is suspect, that one can simply ask the meta-analysis to recalculate with that study removed? Yes, one would do what's called a sensitivity analysis to see whether removing the study makes a difference to the overall estimate of effect. And uh, so which study is it that has been uh, called into question? Well, uh, there's a study called uh, by Professor Al-Ghazar and his team in Egypt um, that looked at both 
ivermectin for treatment and ivermectin for prevention. In our meta-analysis, uh, we evaluate all studies in the same way following a systematic approach and we assess risk of bias for each study and we include so and, and risk of bias can be assessed as low risk high risk or unclear risk where we where there is some uncertainty and we can't get uh, you know get to positioning it either as low or high and um, and we include all the studies study data in the analysis and then if there is a question of studies being high risk of bias we remove them and see if that changes the results so you included this study in your meta-analysis there was uh how did you rank it in terms of likelihood of bias we ranked it as unclear risk of bias unclear so you had concerns but uh they were not specific Yes, we, um, we had had correspondence with Professor Algazar during the course of our systematic review process. And there were some questions he addressed adequately and there were some that we were still uncertain about and we couldn't kind of get a full um, clarification. And, and we, you know, it is possible that it could be a language difference and we weren't happy to Call it high risk of bias and we weren't happy to call it low risk so it landed as an unclear risk of bias study all right so it seems to me that there are two things uh, that we have to do right up top here one is to say neither you nor i know whether the problems that have been pointed out in this study are evidence of some deep failure something like fraud or not and that it does not make sense to rush to judgment, especially in light of the fact that we have uh, a uh, highly regarded professor and a team of people published on this, and uh, we don't know what the source of the concerns ultimately is. We also don't know um, how much of an opportunity they had to respond to these concerns before The Guardian went to press. Is that fair? Yes, I wouldn't like to prejudge. Um, Professor Elgazar was always very responsive to our queries when we were going through the review process. And, um, you know, I think uh, when, a, when a professor emeritus of a university's reputation is at stake, I think he deserves a fair opportunity to respond to the allegations. Good. All right. So on the one side, in terms of... Uh impugning people's reputations, we need to be extremely careful. And on the other side, we also need to be cautious not to derive any uh, conclusion from a study that we have reason to, um, to be concerned about. And so what happens when you remove this study from the meta-analysis? In fact, maybe you can even show us what happens, given that meta-analysis is a method and you can simply ask the method to exclude a given study. What happens when you do exclude the study? Yeah, sure. Well, we have done that today and we did find that the overall effect still clearly favors ivermectin. And this is the beauty of meta-analysis. So I'll show you, actually, if you don't mind just giving me a minute. Not at uh, all. Not a minute. Um, hopefully it won't be as long as that. Um, I'm just going to... Yeah, there we go. Can you see my screen? I definitely can. 
Okay. So, um, so this is a program called Review Manager, and it's used. It's a Cochrane. It's a free program, actually, and uh, anyone can actually load the data and and check it themselves if they wanted to. But um, the studies are listed. Study names are listed down the left, and these are the data for ivermectin uh, and the data for the control group. And this analysis is for the outcome of death. So it's the most important uh, outcome with regard to COVID. So um, if we remove Algazar, which is this one, and it's over there as well. Sorry, I should have said, before I do that, I should just say, so this is the effect estimate here. It's 0.38, uh, which corresponds to a 62% reduction in death. This is with the, uh, the suspect study included? Included, yes. So if we remove the data, we get a broader confidence interval um, and it's, and the reduction is a 49% reduction in death, but it's still clearly to the left uh, in favor of ivermectin. So it hasn't changed our conclusions. The, um, yeah, the heterogeneity is this uh, figure here. It's come down a little bit and it's perhaps not as dramatically significant as it was before. It's a, it's a, narrow, it's a broader confidence interval, but it still uh, wouldn't change our conclusions. Or right. other meta-analyses. So broader confidence interval means that the uh, your estimate has to take on a broader range because some data has been eliminated. So data that would give you confidence in uh, how effective ivermectin was has uh, been removed from your meta-analysis, meaning that your confidence that you know how useful ivermectin is has dropped but you still have a very clear signal that it is quite valuable in terms of preventing people from dying of COVID. yes yeah it's still a clear signal it's just it's the precision of the estimate that's unclear so um if if we were to do the study a thousand times uh the real estimate would lie somewhere in that range um that's how it's interpreted Right, and so uh, it could be it could be as dramatic. Looking at these numbers, it could be as dramatic as uh, ninety, sorry, as seventy three percent reduction in deaths, or as little as five percent reduction in deaths. But it is a clear reduction. And I should point out a couple things. One, um, people do not often understand the distinction between precision and accuracy. And what you're saying about the confidence interval is that the precision of your estimate has formally dropped, but it doesn't mean that the effectiveness of the drug is necessarily less. In fact, I would point out here that uh, one thing that is logically true is a meta-analysis will include a range of uh, methodologies of administration of the drug. So the best you can do is whatever the optimal way of delivering the drug is, and then other studies will deliver it in some way that is suboptimal. And so my point is, it should not be assumed that 49% is the amount of reduction in death. That is across studies that will range from good to not so good in terms of how they applied the drug. 
Is yes, that fair? Because, uh, yes, absolutely. Because some use very low doses of ivermectin, as now we know that higher doses work better. Um, and uh, and some you, you know some were in very sick people, and we now know that the sooner ivermectin is employed, the better. And, and also some of these studies compared, you know, people who are on many different treatments, especially with the more uh, severely sick people. And so um, there were a whole, whole range of medicines that, were, that the control group was receiving as well that might have been effective. So um, I would say that the effect estimate that we're seeing in, these, in this meta-analysis in particular is underestimated. It's likely to be underestimated because you can't do better than the optimal uh, the optimal uh, protocol, um, but you can definitely do worse. And in fact, virtually every protocol will be worse than optimal. So what, what we would discover if we actually applied the drug is how you best use it. Okay. Um, what I think one of the things that I'm seeing, uh, so I find myself strangely uh, under attack here because there is now a uh, concern about a particular study that shows ivermectin to be useful. I don't believe I've ever pointed to this study. I've certainly pointed to your meta-analysis, which includes this study. Um, but there is another leap to judgment that I see being made uh, by many people, where they love to throw the idea of GIGO, which is a, a computer science concept, garbage in, garbage out. And it is an absolute misapplication of this concept. In fact, I have pointed out that one of the, the troubling things about randomized controlled trials is that if they are badly designed, they give you a very false sense of uh, the truth of a given protocol. Whereas a meta-analysis, because it takes from many different studies that will have different flaws, tends to neutralize those flaws and allows you to see the signal in spite of the fact that no trial will be uh, perfectly designed. Um, and so those who are thinking uh, in this computer science way, GIGO, well, we've got a study that may be compromised. That means that anything that utilized that study is wrong, but that is incorrect. In fact, what we have, as you've just shown us, is the ability to exclude a study that you may have new reason to suspect uh, is unreliable. And so what I would argue, and I don't mean to impugn this study or its authors, I do not know whether or not the study in the end has serious flaws or is fatally compromised by fraud or any such thing. Um, but it's not GIGO. It's a question of if there is some garbage somewhere in a meta-analysis, you take the garbage out and you recalculate the result. So yes. far, is that fair? Yes, it is. Yeah, it's not the only study, you know, where we had uh, some concerns and, uh, you know, there have been in other studies, for example, there was a study um, by uh, Lopez Medina in Colombia that was highly criticized for, um, for the way it was conducted and, and the biases that were inherent in the study design. And yet, um, you know, when you're doing a systematic review, you just evaluate all the studies using the same criteria, the same evaluation for risk of bias. And, uh, and um, you know, when you, and then when you pull it all together, you then grade the certainty of, of the evidence using a particular tool called um, the, the grade working group tool. 
And that takes into account then uh, how certain you are of the evidence. So we downgraded the certainty of our evidence in this analysis for design limitations inherent in some of the studies. And that's how we ended up with moderate certainty evidence and not high certainty evidence. Right. Yes, I noticed that when I read your study, that moderate certainty is a term of art. And uh, in fact, I contacted you at the time and asked you about it. And uh, if I understood your answer correctly, what it means is your expectation of how likely your estimate is to move based on new evidence. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm -hmm. All right. Excellent. Now, I would also point out I've been struggling to call people's attention to a conflation that exists in the discussion of ivermectin and its utility. And that conflation is between its effect as a treatment and its effect as a prophylactic, effectively as a preventive measure to keep people from contracting COVID. Now, the study that has been called into question studied both of these things, and therefore their data is included on both the treatment side and the prophylactic side of your meta-analysis. So uh, I have been, I don't know whether you'll agree with this. I suspect you will, but we'll find out. Um, I believe that as terrific as it is to have a drug, and it's not just one, there are several drugs that are repurposed that seem to have uh, strong effectiveness in treating COVID. As wonderful as it is to have drugs that do that, the more important effect is the ability to prevent people from contracting COVID. And the reason that that's so important is that it offers the possibility of driving the pathogen to extinction. And the difference in the amount of harm that will come to humanity from SARS-CoV-2 if it continues to linger and circulate annually versus goes extinct, that is a huge difference. In fact, you can calculate it as a finite amount of harm that will have come from this pathogen if it goes extinct. It is an indefinitely large amount of harm if it continues to circulate and find new victims every year and mutate and all of the other things that it might do. So the question then is what happens in your meta-analysis when you redo the part that uh, tells us how effective it is as a prophylactic to remove the study that has now been called into question? Okay, well, I'm I'm ready with that. I'm gonna show you my screen. Um, there are only three studies that contribute data to the um, comparison of ivermectin versus a control for prophylaxis. So this this measures the um, the outcome COVID infection, and what we see in across these studies is is I think this works out at about a five percent risk of infection versus a thirty percent, or maybe it was thirty seven percent risk of infection if you calculate that. Um, and, uh, and, and this estimate of 0.14 is, corresponds with an 86% reduction in COVID infections with ivermectin. So if we remove the Algazar data, um, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't really change much. We've, we've got an 87% reduction in deaths and the uh, confidence interval is, is pretty much the same as it was. So Fascinating. So let me try to unpack that a little bit for people who are not so experienced with the analysis of data. You've got three studies that tell us how effective this is as a prophylactic, a preventive of the contraction of COVID. When you eliminate 
the study that has been called into question, the estimate of how effective it is to prevent COVID, if I understood what you said correctly, goes up very slightly. And the confidence is likely to have gone down, and it sounds like not very much. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. So the reason, it, it will be counterintuitive to many people, that the estimate of how effective it is at preventing COVID actually goes up when you eliminate this. And the reason is because the study in question reported a slightly lower degree of effectiveness than the average of the other two studies, or not average, probably that's the wrong term, but the weighted average of the other two studies. Yeah, it just, it just alters it. Um... So in essence, the punchline uh, to this is A, isn't meta-analysis beautiful that you can simply, you know, you wake up to a headline that says you've got a study that uh, maybe you can't trust and you can, uh, with a couple of keystrokes, eliminate that study and see how much it should change your understanding of the effect of the medicine in question. Um, that's the first punchline. And the second punchline is with respect to what at least I am arguing is the more important use of this medicine as a preventive measure it very slightly and probably not meaningfully increases the estimate with which we would imagine the estimate of how effective it is and slightly decreases our confidence in that number. It doesn't decrease the confidence that there is an effect, but it broadens the range over which that effect might fall. Yeah, I think um, the biggest error actually in... Um the ivermectin story and evidence is the failure to take into account the other enormous body of evidence that's not randomized controlled trial or a systematic review and meta-analysis. Uh, just on, on the point of the latter, I've never seen an intervention with so many reviews conducted on it in the space of a year. I think we, we were looking at 11 or 12 now. Um, and uh, and also uh, so many studies uh, published and ongoing. So um, I could actually share, we've been working on a new model actually just to describe this because randomized controlled trials and systematic reviews represent just a teeny bit of the amount of evidence on, um, on ivermectin. Yes. So um, I agree. And I think there is something strange going on with respect to what seems to be an obsession with randomized controlled trials in this case, when in fact we have multiple different kinds of evidence, um, which ought to lend a great deal of confidence. A, a randomized controlled trial can be well designed, in which case it's excellent at amplifying a weak signal, um, but it can also be badly designed. If it has systematic error, it will give too much confidence of a wrong, uh, a wrong belief. So um, it is far better to have multiple kinds of evidence. So why don't you uh, talk us well, through that? Well, randomized controlled trials are very good at showing efficacy, but they're really not good at showing safety. And so whilst we have them, and because trial, randomized trials are usually designed around efficacy endpoints, they're not designed around safety endpoints. And especially if you've got uh, rare, rare side effects, but they're very serious. Uh, you're only going to pick them up with massive, massive trials, uh, and and that's uh, very those are very rarely conducted because they would be very expensive. 
So um, the, the, the usual, people will be familiar with the evidence pyramid. And um, the evidence pyramid goes like this. You have, uh, I mean, there are various different, um, different ones, but basically you have sort of the weaker sorts of evidence like opinions and expert consensus and all of that at the bottom. And then you get uh, other sorts of evidence like case reports and case series, which are just descriptions of a particular um, patient or patients. And then you have case control and cohort studies. And these are non-randomized studies. Um, they can be prospective where you've got uh, comparative, where you've, you give one group one treatment and another group uh, no treatment and follow them up. And then you get randomized controlled trials and the ones that are the, the better standard are double blind randomized controlled trials. But even double blind randomized controlled trials have weaknesses and actually a double blind trial means that the patient is um, doesn't know which treatment they're getting. The clinician doesn't know which treatment they're getting. In actual fact, what we, what we really want these days is quadruple randomized controlled trials where the, the person assessing the evidence doesn't know and the person analyzing the evidence doesn't know. And so even within a double blind or triple blind randomized controlled trial, if the, the group that holds the evidence uh, has a particular... Uh, outcome that they wish to convey, uh, it's still possible for these trials to be manipulated. They're not um, conflict-free, especially, you know, if they're, if they're conducted where there their financial interests involved. Um, and, then, and then these trials uh, are evaluate group together in, in reviews, and reviews can be just general literature reviews, or they can be systematic reviews with meta-analyses, and those are considered... Um, the gold standard. So, but if you think about all the people doing research um, on ivermectin, for example, um, there we, there's evidence on all of these levels. So this pyramid is full, and to disregard all this evidence here, we've got all these experts around the world who are using ivermectin successfully to treat their patients and save lives. So to say, well, that's actually meaningless. What we're looking at is this little tip of the tip of the pyramid here to say. Uh, this is the only thing we're prepared to consider is really um, kind of crazy. Wait, I want to I want to pause you there for a second. Um, I think there's you, you've just said it, many things that are important and it, they will get lost if we don't unpack them a little bit. I understood you to say that randomized control trials. First of all, um, I'm going to pat myself on the back here a little bit. I said on the last live stream I did with Heather last Monday that double blind randomized controlled trials were not blind from the perspective of those running the study. Um, that is to say, they know what outcomes they want and that that means that these are not completely unbiased or not inherently so. Sounds like you just said the same thing and you yeah. introduced me to a term I don't know, which is quadruple blind. But uh I have in the past argued that an analysis is much better when somebody who has no stake at all is is doing it. Yeah, in the ideal world, you'd have um, the investigators of, of the trial uh, conducting the trial and then handing their data over to a totally independent body for it to be analyzed and reported. All right, excellent. Second thing I understood you to say was that the tip of the pyramid is actually not randomized control trial. It is uh, an analysis that looks at multiple kinds of evidence and integrates them, including but not limited to meta-analysis. 
Is that fair? Well, and no, the, the permit as it stands is, um, is systematic review with meta-analyses at the top. Um, and and this is a this is a real flaw because you know you've got people doing their PhDs and doing very great work and to say well if it's not a systematic review with meta analysis is rubbish and we don't even get we're not even going to look at this type of uh, study or evidence that you've done is is just um, it makes a mockery really of of academia and, and research in general so we we're actually working on a different model and it's not uh, it's actually not entirely novel I, I believe it has been suggested before in a similar way and and that's really to look at evidence as as a as a circle as a pie or even as a donut with a center that uh, that involves integration um, and I, actually I can show you uh, I've got a diagram yeah before you do that though um, the other thing I heard you say that people I think will miss if we don't highlight it is that in the case of ivermectin, you have the entire pyramid filled out, right? We have evidence at all of those levels because it has been widely applied across the globe. We have lots of people who have used it, have clinical experience, etc. cetera. Um, and so it is even more bizarre to limit uh, one's understanding of the utility or lack thereof of the medicine to a single strata, right? That's what we see is people obsessed with a single layer of that pyramid. So even if the pyramid is flawed and a donut would be better, um, it is odd that even within the pyramid structure, what we have is an obsession with a single strata. And it's one that obviously carries a built-in bias of its own because it's a very expensive kind of test to run. So it's a, it is basically, well, I, I hesitate to apply a judgment to it, but if one is obsessed with randomized controlled trial, and one insists on these things as the only source of reliable evidence, that is effectively prioritizing uh, new and therefore highly profitable medicines over existing repurposed ones where there's little profit to be made. So if you don't want to build that bias into the analysis, then the answer is you look at all the kinds of evidence. If for some reason you want to stack the deck in favor of new drugs, the way to do it is to become obsessed with large-scale randomized controlled trials. Yes. And I must just say, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, because obviously the need for to under, to have tools to treat and prevent COVID um, was, was of the utmost urgency, the UK's National Institute for Healthcare and Clinical Excellence, or NICE, produced a paper just to say, this is how we're going to look at evidence. If there's a systematic review, we'll look at that evidence. If there's a randomized control, if there's randomized control trial, we'll use that evidence to make our decisions. If there's um, observational data, we'll use that. So they, so they sort of went down the list. They said we'd use that, but if there wasn't that, we'd use randomized controlled trials. If there weren't randomized controlled trials, we'd use observational studies. If there weren't observational studies, we'd use expert opinion and consensus. And, uh, and they, they said they wouldn't bother to, um, to, to, to grade the certainty of the evidence or assess risk of bias. So all assess the risk of bias of individual studies. So they were just, you know, at that it was they were going to use what was available and make decisions based on that. So to see how long they've taken, and in fact, they haven't even looked at ivermectin, but to see how long in general uh, health authorities have taken to evaluate and approve ivermectin, because it surely must be approved based on the, on the body of evidence, is very surprising 
you know, I would like to know why. All right. We will get back to that. I want you to show us the model that you've been working on. This is the improved model uh, replacement, is it fair to say, for the evidence pyramid? I think it would be more appropriate in, in the, the environment we're working in where, as you say, there's just this huge um, emphasis on these expensive randomized controlled trials, uh, which is highly inappropriate given that we're in a pandemic. And just generally when there's mountain of, when, when there's huge amounts of evidence on generic medicines, um, but, uh, you know, and, and which is being disregarded in favor of, just the tip of the of the pyramid. Is there so, any way you could uh, enlarge that on your screen so we could see yes. it a little better? Oh. Marvelous. Okay. So um, yeah, so this is what we're proposing is is that you know evidence is looked at more as a pie, and the center is where you integrate all the information that you receive because it's not just numerical information. There's also a lot of qualitative information, and qualitative information is increasingly important in the World Health Organization's decision-making process. The evidence on effects of a medicine is one of the criteria that's looked at when making a decision to recommend a medicine. But one is also looking at what are people's values? How do they value the outcome associated with this medicine? And for example, if it's ivermectin, well, people really value, value the effect, value that it reduces deaths or reduces your chance of deteriorating or improves, you know, reduces transmission. These are highly valued outcomes. And um, one looks at, um, is it acceptable to people? Well, we know ivermectin is really acceptable because it's used 4 billion times and it's used around the world in so many different countries. We know it's a highly acceptable and very, very feasible. So is it a feasible medicine? Well, we know. So one looks at those types of, and that type of data comes from people's views and experiences and health professionals' views and experiences. And, um, and, and as I say, that's increasingly important in, um, in, in healthcare decision-making. And that data and, and information is being completely disregarded in the context of ivermectin. But just looking at this, uh, at, so this model, basically we, we consider a pie, we have benefits on the one side and harms on the other, or safety. Um, now with regard to benefits or efficacy, Meta-analysis, so this quarter of the pie, the top quarter of the pie, we have meta-analysis, systematic reviews, and randomized controlled trials. And they are the gold standard for determining whether a medicine um, is effective. But they're not good at determining safety. So, um, so for safety, we would have, so we would turn, so, and then, so here we have observational real-world data and qualitative data. That's sort of less important when you're looking at benefits. You want to know, does this medicine work? Um, and when you're looking at, at safety, actually, what you want to know, you want to hear from the patients. Uh, how do you feel? What are your side effects? You want, you want the qualitative, you want the data. So you want qualitative data. You want data from those pharmacovigilance databases where people report adverse events. You want real-world data and, and, and uh, observational studies. What are we seeing um, on, on the ground in the field? And, and the and evidence from the randomized controlled trials is, is really less important. So what, and so with ivermectin, one has all this evidence because we've got real real world data, we've got um, testimonials from patients, we've got experts around the world, doctors using the medicines. Um, and, uh, and so we know it works and, and that it's very safe. Um, and, um, and, and with, um, you know, if you look at 
a large randomized controlled trial done a novel randomized a novel, for a novel treatment that's just arrived on the block. We don't have any expert consensus, any expert opinion on safety, any real world data, or any patient uh, experiences and views of the medicine. All we have is perhaps something here in this slither of a pie uh, over here um, for novel treatments and. Uh, and, and in many instances, nothing on, on safety and long-term safety particularly. So for ivermectin, I'd say we have a whole pie. We can integrate the evidence in the middle and say, when we look at the, we can see the big picture, this is a highly effective medicine in a range of contexts and uh, in, a range with a, in a range of settings, as well as in a range of, of, um, uh, of conditions from preventing preventing illness to treating mild, moderate, and severe uh, disease. Uh, whereas uh, compared with new farm, new big pharma drugs that are coming in that are highly expensive, they do have a randomized trial, but they're just coming in with this slither of evidence here. And we have very little information on really how safe and acceptable and feasible and cost-effective these medicines are. So, um... Let me uh, continue to play student here. The um, the in the case of something like a large scale randomized controlled trial, there are certain measures which are taken, but those trials are not going to be good at catching uh, other kinds of phenomena. Whereas clinical experience, for example, if doctors prescribe a drug and they find that uh, some patients don't tolerate it well. That kind of knowledge will accumulate um, in their experience, their clinical experience. And so your uh, new model here would integrate that information, whereas the obsession that we see with a single uh, stratum in the pyramid will tend to exclude that information. So basically, you're arguing uh, for a holistic approach that uh, basically optimizes for good outcomes rather than for a proxy variable, which may or may not be a good indicator of uh, patient well-being or epidemiological effect. Yes, yeah. And when you do when you do a systematic review as well, you just chuck out all the studies that aren't randomized controlled trials. You know, and with ivermectin, for example, among others, there's there's many many other studies. So you literally get these, you do your literature search and just really looking for the word random and you, you know, and everything else just gets dismissed. And there's some really fabulous studies, you know, um, study done in Mexico by the Mexican government where they gave people ivermectin, a, a little uh, kit of ivermectin and um, zinc and uh, paracetamol, I think it was, uh, uh, and um, as soon as they tested positive, and they found that when they compared those data, and, and they did it in, in uh, I think it was 75,000 people or so, uh, and they compared it to hospitalizations. And when they looked at hospitalizations before and after, they found that the ivermectin kit had that approach had reduced hospitalizations by 50 to 70% or something like that. And those kinds of really uh, important um, and useful data and evidence are just completely ignored. 
Yes, conspicuously so, because obviously that's a very dramatic effect, and it's not like one couldn't invent a reason that it could have happened otherwise, but it would have to be a pretty exotic explanation to account for that uh, strength of signal, right? It doesn't matter that the patients knew what they were being treated for. The placebo effect can't keep you from needing hospitalization. Um, So in light of that, a reasonable person who was doing an honest evaluation of evidence would have to admit that that was significant in spite of its not being randomized uh, and placebo controlled. Uh, whereas a um, someone engaged in sophistry who wished not to acknowledge the effect of a drug in which there was no profit um, might exclude it on the basis that the placebo effect might magically somehow interface with this, which of course there's, there's no evidence for it. I don't know if you're unlikely to know that Heather and I covered the fact that um, the placebo effect, um, while it is significant, applies to subjective measures like pain and is not good at preventing people from needing hospitalization or keeping them from dying. In fact, it doesn't do that at all. Uh, Okay, good. So is there more to say about an integrative approach uh, and the value of it? Um, well, I mean, one could just come up with, uh, you know, a number of examples, uh, of, of other, you know, of other studies and no, I I don't think, I think, I think we've kind of covered it. Great. So then let me ask you a, a question or two. There is evidence. It has a certain amount of noise in it. Your expertise involves Uh, compiling evidence of different kinds, uh, discovering the signal within it, dealing with noisy data sets, and reaching a conclusion about patient well-being and potentially uh, epidemiological effect of a given treatment. What you are seeing with respect to the body of evidence that applies to ivermectin and its utility both as a treatment and a prophylactic uh, for covid how is that resulting in a is that informing policy with respect to the use of ivermectin in a way that is familiar to you or is there something unusual going on here no it's really very unusual um i've never seen such a huge body of evidence being ignored many of the recommendations that are made on um you know in the guideline panels that i've been involved with are based on far less evidence, recommendations in favor. Sometimes it's possible for there to be no clear evidence of effect even, but because an intervention is highly acceptable, desirable, and feasible, um, a, a decision might be made uh, in favor of it. So, um, so it's very unusual for such a huge body of evidence to be ignored and to be calling for more large trials. So you said... You have never seen such a large body of evidence being ignored. Yes. That is a profound statement. It's not that you have insignificant experience in this area. You do this for a living, and you are seeing a body of evidence, and you've never seen one this large be ignored. That's, I mean, in some sense, that that sums it up, does it Mm. not? Mm. But I'd also like to say, you know, I mean, as a as a medical doctor, you know, we we do no harm. You know, we 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 do not take risks. 
and um, and I'm also a mother and I have three children, you know, and I wouldn't want any harm to come to them from a medicine that's, um, that, that hasn't got a good safety profile. So I think, of, you know, when I think to myself, what do I feel about ivermectin? Would I give it to my children? Would I have wanted it in my cupboard? Well, yes, the answer is yes. And if I had a friend who was ill now, I would desperately want to get some ivermectin to them. Um, so uh, my, as in combination with other, because ivermectin is not the only effective treatment, we know that it works best in combination with other treatments that are also older, safe, over-the-counter medicines in most in, in many instances. So, so yeah, so you know, I'm I when I look at the evidence, I know that ivermectin works. It's confirmed over and over and over again. And um, and we know that it's very safe. If I could just if if I could just say, and many people who have heard me be interviewed before, you know, I always refer to the World Health Organization's Veggie Access database because ever since January, when these newspaper reports uh, started coming out about adamectin being dangerous potentially or unsafe, I thought, well, let me follow it on the pharmacovigilance database. And um, since January, it's hardly changed. The, the adverse events reporting uh, has hardly changed. And it's being used by hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people at this very moment in time. So one would expect if it was dangerous, one would see an increase. One would see a, a signal the way we actually have seen with uh, these remarkable vaccines that are being so widely deployed. Well, in actual fact, uh, you know, I have been tracking, because I was tracking ivermectin, I started tracking the COVID-19 vaccines on the same database. And now you can't even plot them on the same graph because the um, adverse event reactions for ivermectin since 1992 are still in the region. are like 5,500 adverse drug reactions given, and billions of doses have been given. And for the... COVID-19 vaccinations, there's 1.3 million adverse drug reaction records on the WHO's Fiji Access database. Yes, and uh, some very, very serious, including uh, the last I looked, there was something like 10,000 deaths in the U.S. Um and of course, some of those will be coincidence, but uh, it's a very large number uh, compared yes. to to previous. Do you want to say anything about that? You've also done an, an, a meta analysis. Well, yeah, I am, I am keeping my eye on it now. Um, there's uh, there's seven thousand and some maybe seven thousand three hundred deaths on the WHO's database. There's fifteen thousand or so on the European database. Uh, there's the VAERS database. The UK has a fairly relatively small population, and we've got 1,400 deaths recorded. Um, but it's not just the deaths. I think it's the number of records. And within the within those data, there are life-threatening and life-changing events. So it could be that an event is reported, but in actual fact, the sequelae, the what comes after, are not reported because once it's reported, the report is done and kind of closed whereas the person might go on to die or might go on to develop more serious events. So, you know, my opinion on those data is that um, each and every one of those, those reports needs to be followed up. 
Yes, especially in light of the fact that these uh, vaccines did not go through a normal process, but are being administered under emergency use authorization, at least in the U.S. I guess I I confess I don't know what's going on in Britain or the rest of Europe. Um, Is it also the equivalent of an emergency use authorization? Yes. And so uh, just logically speaking, because it did not go through or because it did go through a truncated process in which harms could have been spotted, it makes sense logically, and I believe uh, also uh, ethically, that is to say, according to the rules, that one would presume that adverse events were owing to uh, to the vaccines until proven otherwise. Um, yes. And these pharmacovigilance databases are absolutely vital in the current context of unproven experimental vaccines. So, you know, every report should be followed up. It's an early warning system. It's an early and warning system. It uh, Every analysis I have seen acknowledges that it undercounts that there is uh, a bias to, against reporting. It's hard to calibrate how underreported it is, but it also, you're introducing me to something I didn't realize, which is that once an event is filed, it's closed. So if somebody has a condition that uh, gets worse, at the point they file it, uh, it is effectively um, artificially held at, um, at whatever level it existed at that moment. Is that right? Yes, well, if you take a condition like Guillain-Barre syndrome, which is progressive paralysis, that is a fatal condition. But uh, if you look at, for example, the UK's yellow card database, it just shows you the number of it shows you the number of cases and it shows you the number of fatalities. But that number of fatalities is obviously going to go up over time because we know that it is a fatal condition. So at the very least, uh, we can say there is an alarming signal and it really ought to have us uh, engaged in extra scrutiny. And somehow, as with ivermectin, where you see what you're reporting is the largest body of evidence you've ever seen ignored, we have a very powerful signal of adverse events that is also largely being ignored. It's a remarkable situation. Well, it is a remarkable situation. The double standards is just so striking. You know, when I've seen, um, in fact, on the 5th of March, the FDA, your FDA, published concerns in in the news about concerns about the danger of of ivermectin and using an unapproved medicine and clearly you know that um you know the, the silence on the the potential harms uh of the vaccines and the alerts that we're seeing uh on the early warning systems of these pharmacovigilance databases the silence is deafening no, I would really like to hear something, some expression of concern from these regulatory bodies, because it certainly doesn't look like ivermectin is the medicine we need to be afraid of. So, all right, uh, you are a medical doctor, you are an expert data analyst, you are an external consultant for the WHO. You have just reported what seems like um, the obvious response to the evidence, which is that we have a useful tool. We're not applying it in the case of ivermectin. We have another 
tool that is potentially useful, but is showing uh, an alarming signal that it is also doing harm to people, and that is also being ignored. The double standard between these two, right? The uh, the way in which um, tiny harms that appear to owe to ivermectin or be correlated with it in some cases are being magnified what seems like wildly out of proportion in the same way that harms that are uh, quite substantial that seem to be associated with the vaccine seem to be downplayed. It all seems like there's a foregone conclusion that we haven't been told about that seems to be driving conclusions about what's safe and what isn't and what's effective and what isn't. I mean, is there another interpretation? No, but, you know, I think if, if we are finding it difficult, I feel really sorry for, for people who don't understand the science of it and you're trying to navigate and understand what's going on. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, what I've been saying is that there are two kinds of scientific consensus. There's a natural consensus that arises when evidence increasingly points to something and all of those who look at it come to the same conclusion. And the example I've used is plate tectonics, which was originally an extremely controversial idea, but the evidence for it is so overwhelming that a consensus now exists. All scientists, I don't know if there are exceptions, but if there are any, it's a tiny few, all scientists believe that the continents float uh, and plate tectonics is a, is. Uh, even if it's imprecise, it is the correct, it is the accurate model. Um, and then there's a very unnatural kind of consensus. It's a kind of consensus that is leapt to for reasons that have nothing to do with the evidence. And that's what I strongly believe is going on here, because at the very least, any honest broker would have to admit that there is substantial evidence in favor of ivermectin's effectiveness and uh, in favor of uh, significant harms that derived from the vaccines, anybody would have to admit that the evidence is there. It doesn't mean that reasonable people couldn't disagree over what the balance of the evidence is, but to pretend that the evidence points to exactly the opposite of those conclusions in any clear way is preposterous, and yet that seems to be the consensus that you would you would imagine exists if you just simply uh, tuned into the public discussion. So it's a very bizarre disconnect. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, two more questions uh, in this sort of area before we move on. One, this study that has been called into question uh, most prominently in the Guardian article, the Guardian article which begins with a political attack claiming that those who have argued that ivermectin appears to be effective based on the evidence are somehow right-wing, which is a preposterous and obnoxious uh, stigmatizing claim. It is surprising that, uh, uh, that that article starts off with a political statement like that, and it does seem to be a sign of the times that, you know, uh, early treatment seems to be highly politicized, early treatment yep. COVID. I mean, I'm certainly not right-wing. I don't put myself in any kind of political camp at all. All right. So you're apolitical. I would say, uh, scientifically speaking, I'm apolitical. Uh, what I say is it's natural for one's political beliefs to emerge from their science. It is not natural or acceptable for one's political beliefs to inform one's science. And so I try to maintain that uh, with great vigilance. I 
follow the evidence where it goes. And if it tells me that something politically has to be true, then that's fine, but never the other way around. But in my political I mind... Like, I just like to stay away from labels generally. I mean, I, I think being being labeled, we're all, we're all very, very interesting and complex beings. And I don't think um, labeling helps really in, in trying to resolve things. It, it doesn't help. But um, in terms of understanding what is taking place in the public dialogue, it's at least worth noting that if I take something like the political compass test, which is, I'm sure, not a perfect test of anything, but it at least seems to be uh, a decent measure of where one falls out politically, I fall out very far left. Um, so the idea that this is somehow a right-wing phenomenon, that belief in this evidence or recognition of this evidence is a political phenomenon of the right is simply at odds with the facts and preposterous. Um, and I think it's a, a tell that the Guardian article begins that way. But let's uh, let, let's come at this from for another from another angle. This is not the first study that has shown reasons for concern. Would you like to talk at all about uh, what you've seen in um, prior analyses? Um, well. Um I mean, the nature of, of what we do with uh, meta-analyses is to integrate evidence. I don't really like to pick out any particular studies uh, when what we're looking is we're looking at is an overall effect. So, you know, there have been other studies that have um, been very widely publicized and also have received a lot of criticism. There was a study done in Colombia by Lopez Medina that was published in JAMA. And, uh, and it was widely hailed as being conclusive evidence that ivermectin didn't work, which clearly, you know, as, I've, as we've explained, is not the case when you're looking at pooling data. And there were a number of limitations of, of that study, which made it really ridiculous to draw that conclusion that ivermectin didn't work. And, um, and so, you know, what we have seen over the course of this evaluation of ivermectin is a preponderance of negative studies being published and, and positive studies languishing on preprint servers. Now, usually there's something called publication bias, and usually publication bias is, is, is in favor of positive studies. So you, you because journals have always like to publish positive findings because they're more likely to sell journals, I guess. You know, people want good news, not bad news, and they don't want to hear that it's, uh, medicine doesn't work. So it has been unusual to see negative studies uh, being published in, 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 in good journals and then, and then being reaching the press very quickly and being highly shared, uh, highly publicized on mainstream media to kind of emphasize erroneously that ivermectin doesn't work so that's so that was the one study and then the other the other um, review that also was quite widely kind of picked up by the media was a review by Roman et al and um, and this review had some errors in it which have still not been corrected that uh, pushed the analysis in favor of no difference with ivermectin although it did show a difference, and these findings were actually misinterpreted to, to um, draw the conclusion that there was no difference. In any event, it's a, this flawed review received prominence in the media and, again, was, was touted as, as suggesting that ivermectin doesn't work. 
So, yeah. It's, so wait, um, on that one, uh, so you've pointed to a couple of different anomalies. One, so you say largest body of evidence you've ever seen being ignored, that the publication bias in the case of ivermectin goes in a surprising direction. In general, people, uh, you know, we all recognize that positive results are more dramatic and therefore there's greater eagerness to publish them. And so that would be the typical bias. In this case, we see exactly the opposite. There seems to be a fervor for publishing negative evidence and not positive evidence. But then you point to this uh, Roman et al. study. And am I right that there was a clear, deeply embarrassing error made in the uh, in the interpretation of the evidence, and then upon being uh, this being pointed out, they fixed the error in the analysis, but the conclusion of the paper remained unchanged. Um, I'm not going to go into the details, but it is a very flawed review, and we have asked for it to be retracted or, or, or corrected. Retracted or corrected, and that has not happened yet. No. All right. Um, so people watching this surely are going to be scratching their heads. One thing that people will scratch their heads over is who to trust. And one thing that I think is important to recognize is that the incentive to bias anything in favor of ivermectin is quite low because it's an out-of-patent drug. There is not some group, as far as I'm aware, that has some uh, financial incentive to support the idea that it works better than it actually does. Whereas with respect to alternatives to ivermectin, whether it's uh, brand new drugs like uh, malnupiravir or whether it's vaccines, there are conflicts of interest. We can debate whether those conflicts of interest have implications for uh, for the evidence or its interpretation, but nonetheless, the, the conflicts of interest arise on one side of the equation very substantially, and they don't exist in uh, any major way that I'm aware of, at least, on the other side. Do you have any conflicts of interest that are relevant here? No, I don't have any conflicts of interest. I have no shares in any pharmaceutical companies or in ivermectin and uh, i have been working on this um initially it was for free because it wasn't a commissioned piece of work but now um our work is funded by crowdfunding and uh, i draw a modest uh, amount from that crowdfund and i have done for the last two months um so no but also i just wanted to say um i think it's important also for people to know that I'm not anti-vaccination in general. I have received all my vaccinations. My children have received all their vaccinations, but we haven't received the COVID-19 vaccination. And this is largely because I am concerned about the safety of these vaccines. On the World Health Organization database for a vaccine like tetanus, which I would have tomorrow if I stood on a rusty nail or got bitten you know, or something, uh, I would... Um, I would take that vaccine because since 1968 on the WHO's pharmacovigilance database, there's been 36 deaths and around 14,000 adverse events. Um, whereas on the same database, there's been more than that number every day this year um, against the COVID-19 vaccine. So 
you know, there are some vaccines that are very, very safe and that can be trusted. And then there are these new vaccines, which I feel there is a strong signal uh, that they lack the safety that we would like um, for ourselves and our children. So I will say the same thing. My my longtime viewers will know this, but uh, I'm among the most vaccinated people I know. My wife is too, as a result of the fact that we did tropical field work and were vaccinated against some exotic things. I would say I am very pro-vaccine in the abstract sense. I think it's a very elegant technology that uh, makes use of our endogenous immune system in a way that is uh, hugely advantageous and has been a great boon to humanity. I initially, when I first heard of the vaccines that were being developed, was hopeful that the vaccines would end the pandemic. I assumed I would be vaccinated. I was concerned that because the technologies being deployed were novel, that there might be long-term hazards. And then as short-term adverse events started to show up in large numbers, I became very concerned. I am also not vaccinated. I am on prophylactic ivermectin. Uh, I am cautious about COVID. I've been I'm very concerned about the disease, and I've been concerned, Heather and I have been concerned from the beginning, and we've um, been proactive. We were wearing masks when no one else was. So uh, it, it is a substantial concern. But yes, I've arrived where you are as somebody who in principle favors vaccines. I'm alarmed by what I've seen. It has altered my behavior. I don't like the idea of being on any drug, including ivermectin, long term. Mm-hmm. Um, but from the point of view of having an active pandemic and vaccines that to me are alarming, it seems the better choice. Yeah, well, you know, you just have to, you just have to ask healthcare workers around the world, you know, would, are they taking ivermectin or would they take it? And, you know, I think if there's thousands of healthcare workers, doctors like Pierre Corey taking ivermectin to prevent COVID, you know, I think, um, I think it's worth, uh, you know, I don't think you've got anything to lose, put it that way. Yes, or a lot less to lose. Um, all right, so what else should we talk about? We've talked about the uh, concerns raised by this study and the anomalies that uh, have been pointed out. We've talked about different kinds of evidence and how they might be interpreted. We've seen the value of meta-analysis and the fact that it has an elegant protocol for when a particular study shows uh, signs of concern. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. Um, I'll just put it down. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, what else should we talk about uh, in terms of Well, um, yeah, well, I, I can tell you what, what our next steps are in the UK. Well, good. Um, so we have a group called the British Ivermectin Recommendation Development Group. It's actually an international group. It's not just British doctors and um, healthcare professionals or scientists. Um, but we now have a number of affiliates um, around the world. There are other doctors groups. There's Italian groups. There's Canadian groups. There's um, Dutch and um, uh, Philippines, uh, groups in many different countries, Australia, who are wanting to use ivermectin-based protocols and are struggling to get the endorsement and approval from governments. So we are 
collaborating more and more to produce protocols that can be used by or referenced by health professionals who are wanting to, to provide early treatment. And we are also trying to get the message to the public that COVID is treatable so they can feel less fearful, you know, if they do get COVID, they can feel less fearful knowing that there are some treatment options available. And also that there are options if you're not wanting to take the vaccine, that they are safe, uh, there's at least a good option to reduce your risk of getting COVID. Um, so we're doing, uh, we, we, we have an initiative on the 24th of July, including all these affiliated groups to celebrate cautiously uh, and a cautiously, a cautious celebration uh, for World Adamectin Day. So this is an international initiative to raise awareness amongst the public that COVID is treatable and that Adamectin is a very important component of treatment for COVID. So uh, I will uh, I will continue to beat the drum that I've been beating, which is ivermectin is two two drugs. It's two medicines. Um, one is a prophylactic, the other is a treatment, and the combination is uh, very powerful, according to the evidence, in terms of preventing cases and in cases that do occur, making those cases much less serious especially when uh, the medicine is given early. So I, I really believe that something strange is going on in this space. It's reflected in what you've said about the large amount of evidence that's being ignored, but that if we had public health officials that understood the evidence and were acting in the long-term interests of the public, then using the tools that we have at our disposal to maximal effect would render this pandemic much less serious quickly and potentially end it much sooner. And the failure to do that is conspicuous, bizarre, and unacceptable. Mm. I mean, the idea that anybody would allow the pandemic to continue if we had tools that could in principle bring it to an end, I, I just find shocking. Yeah, we've got something that, you know, that reduces transmission, um, uh, prevents getting sick in the first place, and um, we've known about it for months and months. So um, I think most concerning, you know, is that we see a number of people getting the vaccine still getting COVID and, uh, and in fact, uh, many getting COVID-like illnesses, uh, even long COVID-like illnesses. And, um, and it's possible uh, that, um, you know, they might also need ivermectin to, to treat these, um, these COVID-like like illnesses. So we're in a situation where so let me just go back to the, we've got something that works against, tra prevents transmission, but also will work against variants because it has multiple mechanisms of action. But it looks like we're also going to need it to help ameliorate symptoms amongst people who have COVID-like illness after vaccination. So it seems like everybody needs ivermectin, whether you've been vaccinated or not, because 
the vaccines don't seem to work against variants and they seem to be associated with COVID-like illness. Yes, this is a, a tremendously important point, right? One hopes with respect to a vaccine that it will be perfect, meaning that it will prevent transmission completely. Uh, the numbers that have been reported are reported as excellent, but another way of saying excellent is um, leaky. That is to say a 5% uh, failure rate of the vaccines to prevent COVID actually creates a selective environment in which variants are much more likely to be transmitted. That is to say those variants of the disease that are invisible to the immune system after the vaccines will have an advantage in a population in which people have been vaccinated in this way. And so ivermectin is a backup for people who have been vaccinated and contracted the disease or people who catch the disease from those who have been vaccinated and have had a breakthrough case. This is, it's the obvious tool to apply. And so our failure to apply it uh, irrespective of where you come down on the vaccines. The simple evidence of what they are and how useful they are suggests that we need a mechanism for treating cases that will be transmitted anyway. Mm. I think, um, I mean, the, the bottom line is that, you know, ivermectin is a sort of medicine everybody wants to have in their medicine cupboard. And it's a sort of medicine every doctor in an ICU or any hospital treating COVID patients would like to have readily available. Well, I hope that people will listen to this podcast with an open mind, and especially for medical professionals who may have encountered what seems to be a propaganda campaign uh, to discredit this very useful, not very profitable medication, uh, will rethink their approach. And in light of the uh, long-standing use of the drug and its apparent uh, safety, will try it. What do you have to lose? If you have a patient for whom you don't have an alternative, trying the drug, if it doesn't work, you can always discontinue it. Um, but it, it seems to me that people need to hear the evidence is clear we are lucky that we have as much information about the safety of, of this drug as we do and that the signal is as good as it is with respect to safety. And in light of that, uh, you know, the Hippocratic Oath would seem to suggest applying the drug is the right thing to do for a patient for which you have no alternatives rather than withholding it. Yeah. All right. I'm going to well, use the word medicine. Oh, not sorry. <laughs> yeah. Medicine is a better word. Yes. Drug uh, has all kinds of, you know, I guess drug covers positive things, negative things. Um, yeah. Medicine's better. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, ivermectin is a good old safe medicine. All right. Excellent. Anything else you'd like to say? No. Thanks very much, Brett. This has, uh, been, this has been good, and, and I appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Tess Laurie. It has been a pleasure talking with you, and uh, I certainly hope people will hear what it is you're trying to alert them to and take it very seriously. Okay, be thank well, you. everyone. Bye.